Well, good afternoon, everybody. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, and we'll be reading a bit of context. Our main theme verse is verse 7, 16, 7. But I'll read from one verses 1 to 13 um, to get the, the background and the context. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'll start at verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Thus reads God's word. And to start off, I'd like to give a bit of context so we have in our Bibles 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Did you know that originally it was one scroll, one book, and it was just called the book of Samuel? So it was split into two in our English Bibles. That was actually done in the Septuagint. So originally there's one book, the book of Samuel. And we could split this book of Samuel into really three sections. And they really um, they center on three different people. The first Seven chapters are all about Samuel, the prophet Samuel. The next section is from chapters 8 to 15, and it's all about Saul. And then from 1 Samuel 16 all the way to the end of 2 Samuel, who's it about? David, that's right. So you could think of the whole book of Samuel as about Samuel, Saul, and David. And obviously way more is given over to David. So this chapter 16 is a transition between Saul and David. 
So this comes at a very important part in the book of Samuel. Now, if I ever use the word story, I do not mean at all that this is not real historical facts. I'm speaking of, if I could say, I told you a little bit of my story earlier. Does that make sense? So some people talk about the Old Testament as, 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 as a story, almost as if it didn't happen. And I don't mean that at all. These are real historical facts. And what is the book of Samuel about? As I said, we see Samuel, Saul, and David. And the book of, the book of Samuel is all about God's relationship with Israel. And what's, what comes right before 1 Samuel in our Bibles? Judges. And what does it say at the end of Judges? It's probably the most depressing, one of the most depressing verses in our Bibles. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Things are not going well in Israel. And there was a need for a king in Israel. In fact, if you look at the law and the Torah, there was actually directions for how the king, which there wasn't a king when that was given, how a king should operate and, and what, how he should be king. And, and so there was, there was a need for a king in Israel. But if you read the book of 1 Samuel, the people wanted their own king after the fashion of the nations around them. And this was a wrong way, the wrong way for a king and wrong, wrong reasons. They wanted a king that would be like the king of other nations. And so God gave Israel a king like that of other nations. But we see through the failure of King Saul, um, which he was a failure of a king, he revealed his own purposes. God raised up his own king, a king after his own heart, and showed Israel a picture of the true king that they really needed. Um, and so the book of Samuel really shows us the failure of human kings. Even David. We know some of the failures of David's reign. We could think of the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. We could think of the census that he took. Even David, great as a king as he was, his failures point us to the fact that we need even a greater king. And so the book of Samuel just leaves us with anticipation for a king that will come in the future. And that's what the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is all about. Now, what are, what's some immediate context? Look back in your Bibles one chapter. Look at verse, chapter 15. I'm not going to read it. But this is where God rejects Saul once and for all. You see, Saul was given a job. He was supposed to go destroy the Amalekites. Now, Whenever the Amalekites show up in the Bible, God says, destroy them. They are sworn enemies of God. And Israel is always supposed to have nothing to do with them. And many times, they're actually tasked with destroying them. And Saul was supposed to wipe them out. And he didn't. Do you remember how he goes and he kills some of them? But he keeps all the sheep and all the spoil and everything. And he says, he comes back to Samuel, the prophet, and he says, I've done what the Lord commanded, which was a lie. He did part of what the Lord commanded. And what does Samuel say? What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen that I hear? Can you just imagine? Saul says, I've done what the Lord says. And you can hear the, the oxen and the sheep in the background. And Samuel's like, what is this noise? You have not done what the Lord commanded. And this is what he says. This is, this is very, a very famous verse. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And Saul is rejected as being king over Israel. And so Samuel, actually, remember what Samuel does to the king of the Amalekites? He kills him right there in the, in the palace um, as he's laughing and saying, I'm safe. 
Um, and Samuel does what Saul's supposed to do. And Samuel is grieved because, you see, Samuel was very much invested in the, the good of Israel, and he wanted Saul to work out. He truly did. If you look at the, uh, chapter 15, verse 35, it says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so we see Samuel is grieving over Saul. He might, he might have even been somewhat of a friend to him. And this is just breaking Samuel's heart, that Saul was a failure and rejected the Lord and that the Lord had rejected him. And so now we come to our passage. And I'm going to split our passage kind of into three sections to help us understand it. So the first section is from verses 1 to 5, and I'll call this the hope of a new king. The hope of a new king. We start out... Uh, with Samuel grieving again in the chat, verse one, grieving over Saul. However, God tells Samuel basically, "Stop grieving over Saul. I've rejected him." Uh, sometimes God's people can overgrieve uh, over over the wicked ones, and we need to be able to move on and obey the Lord. And we see Samuel being told to do this, and he gives God gives Samuel new directions. He says. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This is the hope of a new king. Saul is a failure. We need a new king. And so he sends uh, Samuel to Bethlehem to find the king. And this is different than Saul. This king is going to be different than Saul. You see, Saul was a king like that of other nations. But this time, God says, I will choose for myself a new king. This time, God says, I'm choosing the king, not the people of Israel. And he tells Samuel to go find the king. I find it fascinating that God didn't tell him who it was. He gives kind of unspecific directions, does he not? He says, he's one of the sons of Jesse. And he doesn't tell him it's David. You know, it's, and I think the reason for this is because Samuel needed to learn a very important lesson and we're going to see what that is in just a little bit. But God gives unspecific directions. God does this in other places too. In fact, when he tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son Isaac, he doesn't tell him the specific mountain. He says, go to the land of Moriah and I will tell you, I'll give you more information later on on which specific mountain this is going to take place. God does this sometimes either test his people or to teach them important lessons. Now, instead of rejoicing, Samuel responds in fear. He says, how can I go? This is treason and treachery against Saul. If Saul finds out that I'm supposed to go find a new king, what is he going to do to me? You see, Samuel somewhat acts as a coward. If God had told him that what to do, he should have obeyed God. Instead, he responds in fear. However, we see the Lord being patient with Samuel. He gives him kind of a cover story. <laughs> go make a sacrifice in Bethlehem, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and then you'll figure out who the king is. So this is the hope of a new king. The second section is from verses 7 to 10. And I'll call this the mistake of the prophet. You see, Samuel makes a pretty big mistake here. You see, Samuel arrives at Bethlehem. He finds Jesse, and he starts looking at his sons. You can just imagine him, kind of first impressions. Which is, which is the one the Lord's telling me? There's lots of sons here. Which one will be the king? And so he has the sons kind of pass before him. And we have Eliab, the, the, the oldest, the eldest um, son. And immediately Samuel's like, that's the one. That's the one. Now you might have imagined, what, have, what was Eliab looking like 
What, what was his appearance? It, was, it must have been so um, uh, attractive that Samuel would have been, that's him. Um, Dale Ralph Davis, if you've never heard of Dale Ralph Davis, he an, has an excellent commentaries in the Old Testament. But he says, Elia must have been an impressive hunk of manhood <laughs> for Samuel just to look at him and say, that's the king, right? You see, Samuel was looking at the outward appearance. Samuel makes him, he made a mistake here. He assumed that Eliab was the new chosen king. But we, as soon as the thought comes into his head, what does God tell him? God immediately says in verse 7, Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. This is a rebuke of Samuel. He should have known better. And this is why Samuel had a bad track record with looking at the outward appearance. He did the same thing with Saul. If we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel is talking to all of Israel that are assembled to choose the king, which is Saul. And Samuel talks about Saul's good looks. Uh, I'm not kidding. It says in verse 23, and when Saul stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. What does God tell Samuel? Do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature. This is very specifically pointing out Samuel. Samuel was impressed by tall dudes. He he, he said, man, that must have been the king. That's a sign of power. He's good looking. He's handsome. He's tall. This has got to be the king. He did it with Samuel. Uh, sorry, Samuel did it with Saul, and he also did it with Eliab. Eliab was tall and good-looking. But God tells Samuel, that's the wrong criteria for my king. We move on to verse 11 and 13, very briefly, and this is the surprising choice of God. After Eliab is rejected, the other sons of Jesse are brought forward, and God just rejects them right and left. It says Abinadab came by, not the one. Shammah comes by, nope, not the one. Seven of his sons pass by, and he says, none of them. And almost as an afterthought, Samuel says, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, oh yeah, there's the one I left out in the field to mind the sheep. You see, he was obviously no one's pick for the job, not even his own father. He said, you just watch the sheep. We'll just keep these other sons here to meet the prophet of the Lord. So David's called in from the field, and of course we know the story. He's the one chosen. He is the chosen king. This goes against everybody's expectations. This go, Samuel didn't expect this. Jesse didn't expect this. Jesse's sons didn't expect this. Do you think David expected this? David was just minding the sheep, and suddenly they say, come over here, and he gets anointed by the prophet and told he's going to be the new king. He was probably the most surprised out of anybody. And this is a very momentous chapter in the Bible, because this is the introduction to David. And David is one of the most important figures in the whole Bible. Jesus, David's son and David's Lord, comes from David. Um, David is one of the most often um, mentioned names in the entire Bible. And this is just a very important, in redemption, this is a very important moment. So there we go. We have the hope of a new king, we have the mistake of the prophet, and we have the surprising choice of God. So I'll have some observations And we'll go through these. I think I have five. Uh, The first observation is this. Beware the impressiveness of outward appearances. 
Beware the impressiveness of outward appearance. Samuel was so easily swayed by the outward appearance, whether it was with Saul or Eliab, and so are we, aren't we? We are so influenced by outward appearances and external features. Now, I want to make a clarification. Is there anything wrong with being a good-looking person? No, obviously not. What does it say about David? It says that he had beautiful eyes. How many people in the Bible do we, do we read about does it, that it says they have beautiful eyes? Very few. This might be the only one. It almost seems like the, the, the writer of this book is going out of their way to show us that it's not that external features are bad, but it's about judging someone only by the external or the outward appearance. The danger's not in the outward appearance itself. It's being deceived by the outward appearance. And we are often swayed by first impressions and external features. I think that this happens a lot in choosing leaders. This happens in choosing pastors. This happens in choosing um, deacons. This happens in the church where we're often swayed by the outward appearance. But remember we read in 1 Timothy 3 all the qualifications for the elder? A lot of them have to do with the inside, the heart, the, the character of a person, not just the outward appearance. This is something that is a problem for us. If we go back in 1 Samuel, there was another handsome, tall, and mighty man. Can you think of who I'm talking about? He was the son of David who rebelled against him, Absalom. He was also noted for being tall, handsome, and good-looking. And he was a terrible person. And we see that in, in 1 Samuel, this is a theme. A theme is at the heart. The heart is the most important thing, especially for the king or a leader of God's people. And in the church today, I'm not talking about this church, obviously, but in the church, broadly speaking, don't we see a tendency of being impressed by the show, the charisma, the abilities, instead of perhaps the character? And I, I think... It's a great tragedy to see churches where pastors are chosen for the show and then when it, they have a great fall from grace. And what a tragedy and a wreck that does upon God's people. Many of these leaders, like Saul or Absalom, they fell into disgrace and they caused untold trauma for their congregations. And, and the church that is worldly will seek a worldly leader. And I think we see that out there in the church. We need to beware the impressiveness of the outward appearance and exercise great care in choosing and raising up leaders. We need to look at their, make sure that their hearts are right with God. Here's a second observation. God is not merely concerned with outward matters. God is not merely concerned with outward matters. Frequently, we, all we care about is the outward matters of people. We, judge, we look at a person's physical appearance, their status in society, how much money they have, their abilities, and we instantly make value judgments based on these things. Now, that's kind of all we can do. We can't, as the Lord says in this passage, we can't see each other's hearts, right? We, we kind of do this because of our limitations as human beings, as creatures. However, the Lord does not see this way. The Lord sees into our hearts. If we really confess and believe that God is all-knowing, then he does know everything that goes in our hearts. And we see this theme reflected through the history of Israel. God tells his people over and over again, I want you to worship me with your whole heart, not just outwardly a show of religion. Here's an example, Psalm 147, 10. His delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But Yahweh takes pleasure in those who fear him. 
and those who hope in his steadfast love. In Joel 2, he tells the people of Israel to tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. The Lord Jesus picks up this theme. And do you remember some of the things he says about the Pharisees? They're pretty heavy. He says, you justify yourself in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And then, you know, the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees is a very intense section of Scripture in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. My friends, do you practice a form of hypocrisy? Is your faith one that is decidedly outward and external for the show, for the outward appearance, so other people will think highly of you, but your heart is empty towards God? Do you come to church every Sunday and you participate in the means of grace, but you're just going through the motions? I think to a certain extent, we can all hang our heads in shame. In some ways, we have gone through through a religious service on Sunday morning with our hearts not engaged. But this is not what God requires of us. God requires us to serve him and to love him with our hearts, not just with our outward actions. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite theologians of all time, he said this, the outward things of Christianity, what are those outward things? The Lord's Supper, means of grace, showing to church. These things will never take a man's soul to heaven unless his heart is right. It is on the inward things that God's eyes are chiefly fixed. I think J.C. Ryle is is right there. This is an error of many people who put so much emphasis on outward religious practices that they become integrated into how a person is saved. I think the Roman Catholic Church is a good example of this, how the sacraments themselves and and the, the religious ceremonies that you do are almost seen as a way to be saved. But these things never saved a man. It is about the heart. It is about where the heart is, not about where the hands are, where the feet are. Uh, What does it say about the Lord's Supper? Did you know that when you take the Lord's Supper, it doesn't magically give you grace? (laughs) Hopefully you haven't thought that. But some people treat the Lord's Supper as when you take the bread and you take the wine, you magically become more more gracious or, or sanctified. But what does our confession say? It says, worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance. So worthy receivers take eating and drinking. That's the outward um, partaking. Do then inwardly by faith, really and indeed spiritually feed upon Christ crucified. You do not feed, feed upon Christ crucified by, unless it's by faith. If you just do it through the motions, It's really only, I don't want to say activated by faith, but you know what I mean. It is only by faith that you really feed upon Christ in a spiritual sense. And so, my friends, if you're here today and your religion is very much an outward show, that's something to repent of and to ask God for forgiveness. And in a a more serious note, some live their whole lives in the church and are deceived, thinking that they are saved because they go through the outward motions, but they have not truly repented and, and we need to, to pray for such people. Here's my third uh, observation. We need to trust in God's difficult providences. Trust in God's difficult providences. Uh, put yourself in the shoes of, this, of the people in this passage. Imagine you were Samuel. 
He goes to Bethlehem to find a new king. He's fearful of his life. He's afraid of being killed for treason. And who does God give him to be a new king? A little boy who was a shepherd. Do you think Samuel might have been thinking, what are you doing, God? This is not going to end well. You gave me a little boy. How is a little boy going to save Israel? Saul was a great warrior. And now you have a little boy. How is this going to help me? What was God doing? Think about David. He was out tending the sheep, and all of a sudden, he's anointed with oil and named the next king of Israel. How would you respond in that situation? Would you respond well to a difficult providence, something unexpected? And this theme of trusting God in difficult circumstances is all through the Bible. Think about Abraham, who was asked to sacrifice his son. That might be the most extreme example. He responded in faith. Think of Hosea, who was commanded to marry a prostitute. He responded with faith and obedience. But mostly, think of the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly offered up his life, even though in his human nature he feared the great weight of the cross. What did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, take this cup from me, if it be your will. But not my will, but your will be done. You see, he submitted his will to the Father's, and trusted in the difficult providence of the cross. Thanks be to God, he did. And we have difficult providences in our life, don't we not? If you all think to yourself, you probably could think of a few. Some of you have greater difficulties in your life than others, but we know they're from the hand of God, who is a good God. And if the one who is giving these things to you is a good God, then they are for your good, and you can trust in that. You see, our theology of God really does impact our practical lives. Because if God is truly good, then everything he does towards us is good. And we can rest in that. And we can be confident in that. And one thing we need to do is to look at what God has done in the past and his promises in the past and how they have come true. And therefore, we can face our own circumstances with great clarity. Here's Dale Ralph Davis again. God's ways frequently baffle us. But God's will is sufficiently clear to lead us in the meantime. God's ways may not be clear, but our way is at least enough to know what obedience requires. We may wait for God's providence, but we already have God's law, and it is all we need for the moment. I think that's a really good quote. Many people search for God's will as if it's a secret will and knowledge for my life. And once I know what God's will is for my life, everything will be okay. But did you know that God has already given you his will? And he's given it in his word and in his law. And what it means to do God's will is to obey his commands and trust in his word. And if we do that, even in the difficult, most difficult circumstance in your life, think of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son. He still rested and, and, and believed in the God's promises and acted in faith. And so must we. Maybe you're dealing with heartbreak. Maybe you're dealing with family problems. Maybe you're dealing with, with cancer or a disease or severe depression. These are all difficult providences in our life. Yet we need to trust in God's ways. The God who came through for David and for Abraham and for all the people in the Bible will come through for you. What does Romans 8.28 say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The fourth point is the providence of God is foolishness to the world. The providence of God is foolishness to the world. This is similar to our last point. 
In our passage, the unlikeliest son of Jesse, the youngest, was chosen to be king. If you think about it, there is a pattern in Scripture of God choosing the younger brother over the older brother. Younger brothers love this theme. (laughs) They always feel like the underdog. Think about Cain and Abel. Think about Isaac and Ishmael. Think about Jacob and Esau. Think about Joseph and his brothers. God does the unexpected and chooses the youngest son, not the eldest who will have the inheritance and will lead the family in the worldly scheme of things, but the youngest, uh, most immature in the world's eyes, the least likely. And sometimes God's providence has a strange and refreshing way of trampling on our expectations. We think we know what God should do and what, his, what is the best way God should do things. And God sometimes tramples on our schemes and our ideas, and we see, wow, I'm glad I'm not God. God is not a slave to our conventions. And, and look through the scriptures. Think about other instances where God does unexpected things. Uh, he chooses a 14-year-old girl to bear the Son of God, Mary. That is just completely strange to a world, worldling's eyes. He uses a donkey to rebuke a man. Uh, Balaam and his donkey. Think about it. You could just go through the scriptures and think of the refreshing, upside-down ways that God tramples on human expectations. If you were a worldly advisor to the king or a strategist thinking, all right, Samuel, you need a new king. We need to get this guy and put him in the kingship and Israel will become a powerful nation or at least you'll be able to sustain yourself. Would they have ever chosen a young shepherd boy? No way. That is not wise according to human wisdom. But the providence of God is truly foolish to the world and this is the way that God does his will and tramples on human expectations. I think the greatest example of this is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, what does it say? He had not beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Think about this, the man on the cross dying, how could that be the greatest symbol of triumph and victory? How could that, think about the the symbol of our religion as a cross, It's the greatest, in the Roman day, that was a sign of of, of grief and shame. But for us, it is the greatest paradoxical uh, symbol of triumph and victory. And this is the way that the Lord works. You see, Jesus was the stone the builders rejected, but he has become the chief cornerstone. And this is the heart of the message of Christianity. And we should look at these unusual Uh, unguessable ways of God and difficult things, and we should praise him for these things. What does Psalm 118 say? God has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's move on to the last point, and this is really, I think, where this hits the road. What people need most is a new heart. What people need most is a new heart. The great need of dying souls in our world is a new heart. You can clothe them. You can feed them. You can give them a place to live, you can educate them, but you will not really help them in the ultimate sense unless they receive a new heart. This is the error of the social gospel. We need to feed poor people and we need to educate them. Are those things bad? No, those are good things. But if that is to the the end of the extent of what the church does for lost people, they will never really help them in the end. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. They need repentance. Uh, there's a really good story of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who you, some of you probably don't know who that is. You know, before he was a pastor, he was a doctor. 
and he was a very distinguished doctor in London. And what does a doctor do? He helps heal sick people. And when people say, Dr. Jones, you gave up so much to become a pastor, you know what he would respond with? He says, I gave up nothing, and I gained everything. He was a doctor who attended to people's physical needs. And this was seen by the world to be the greatest act of mercy and compassion. The best career you could have is to help people get better. That's merciful and compassionate. But he felt like he was healing men and women from their illnesses to go back to sin. And he felt like, I'm helping their bodies, but their souls are dead. And that bothered him. You see, what men and women really need is a new heart not just medicine for their bodies or education or social opportunities. Not that those things are bad, but that is not what people really need. And in our evangelism, we need to remember this. What people really need is a new heart. Don't fall into the trap of the social gospel, which replaces the preaching of the gospel with helping only the outward things of men. The prophet Jeremiah, he watched the people of Israel around him fall into great sin and reject God. And what is the heart of the problem with the people of Israel in Jeremiah's day? He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways. The only hope for Israel, Jeremiah teaches, is a total renewal of the heart. And only then will they have hope. God promises to the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And you see, this is the work of the gospel that God does in our hearts. That he takes out our hearts of stone and puts in hearts of flesh. He has given us new hearts and we should be thankful to God. And so in our passage, we see that God sees deeply and clearly into the hearts of men and women. He sees into your heart here today. We saw that the prophet Samuel was overly impressed by outward appearances, but God showed him that God sees the heart unlike man. And the heart, especially in terms of a king and a leader, is what is most important, good character. God is also not chiefly concerned with outward matters but the posture of your heart as a worshiper of him. And we see through these failed kings that the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect king. He is the prophet, priest, and king. And all kings in the Old Testament and their failures point to him and his perfection as, a, as our king. All of his thoughts, his words, and his deeds, his heart were spotless. So may God grant to us clean hearts that we may truly worship him all the days of our life, and glorify him forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we have seen from this passage today that we are easily deceived by outward appearances. And Lord, we pray that we would truly not only worry about the outward appearance, but that our religion would be truly from our hearts, truly intentional, that we would not go through the motions of Christianity, of our religion, and our faith, but that we would truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to fall at his feet and to to throw all our lives before him. Lord, we pray that we would truly indeed um, obey rather than sacrifice and to listen than to to offer up our our sacrifices. Lord, I pray that you would be with us 
um, as we go through this week. May we truly worship you with all of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.